Sometimes the truth that makes the most profound impact on your life is not a new truth, it's a truth you already know. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, happy Father's Day. Um, as a dad, you know, a lot of the time I feel like I'm just barely keeping my head above water. Like I'm just trying to survive the chaos, right, uh, day in and day out. But if it's true that it really does take a village to raise a child, then I want you to know I'm thankful that this is our village. This is a great village to get to raise kids in. And this is a church that is full of some really good and godly dads, just men who are present and engaged and engaged in the lives of their families. They're following hard after Jesus and they're leading their families to do the same. And I think that is absolutely something worth celebrating. Can we say thank you to the dads today? Yeah. And speaking of good role models, we have got some heroes in the room here with us today that I want to just introduce to you briefly. Our dear brother Richard Natim is with us. Uh, Richard, would you mind standing up? Can we say hello to Richard? Yeah. Uh, Richard Natim has been one of our Global Impact Partners for a very long time, doing an amazing work in Ghana, and he's serving as the camp missionary down at Camp Allendale this summer, so we're thankful to get to have the inter- uh, chance to interact with you always. Richard, thanks for being here. Let's say thanks, yeah. And then they didn't know I was gonna do this, so they're probably mad, but Ryan and Sarah Hardy are also with us, and they're back from Papua New Guinea. They're doing an amazing work with Pioneer Bible Translators, translating the Bible there, and they're back having a baby, so say, say hello, yeah. <laughs> They'll be with us for the next several months, and Ryan will preach later on this year. I know you'll be blessed to hear from them. Well, hey, um, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Luke. I'm one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. We're glad you're here, and if you're joining us online, welcome. We're glad you're with us, and we hope to meet you in person soon. Like Kyle said, we're starting a brand new series today called Still True, because even though there's a lot of things changing in the world around us, there are a very few things that never change that we get to build our lives upon. It's kind of these ABCs of the faith, just these foundational building blocks blocks that we want to talk through together that will never, ever change. And I actually really believe that sometimes the truth that makes the most profound impact on your life is not a new truth. It's a truth you already know that we just need to drive deeper down into our hearts. And so that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks together. There's a guy by the name of Robert Fulgham who writes about this principle. He says this, he says, all I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten. All I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten, share everything, Play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, clean up your own mess, don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. (laughs) Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. All I need to know, I learned in kindergarten. Think what a better world it would be, he says, if all of us, the whole world, had cookies and milk about three o'clock every afternoon and then laid down with our blankies for a nap. Or if all governments had a basic policy to always put things back where they found them and to clean up their own mess. Can I get an amen, right? And it is still true, no matter how old you are, that when you go out into the world, it is best to hold hands and stick together. All I really need to know in life, I learned in kindergarten. And so for the next few weeks, we're just gonna revisit some of these core truths of the faith about what it means to be followers of Jesus. And maybe on the video, when you saw the sermon topics, like God is good, sin is bad, the Bible's true, hell's for real, heaven's forever, Jesus is coming back. Maybe you saw those things and you thought, well, 
Duh, <laughs> like, like yeah, yeah, I get it because my guess is most of us in the room today, we know these things. Maybe you even already believe those things and that's great. What I believe though is that the deeper you drive those truths into your heart, they have the power to reshape every aspect of your life and to affect deeply the way we operate in the here and now. So today we're just talking about how God is good and I want this to be a conversation this morning so I'm gonna need a little bit of help from you. Today, every time I say God is good, I want you to say all the time and then every time I say all the time, I want you to say God is good. Can we practice that together? All right, here we go. God is good? And all the time? Excellent, very good. Um, One of the very first prayers I learned as a kid was God is good, God is great, put some pizza on my plate. Anybody else learn that? (laughs) And... (laughs) What it lacked in reverence, it made up for in simplicity. It's good to repeat over and over again this reality that God is good. And some of you are like, okay, do I say it? Like, okay, I'll give you a cue when it's your time to say it. Like, rest easy. All right, here we go. Um, Scripture says it over and over again. God is good. God is good. And maybe you hear that and you think, yeah, preacher, totally. Amen. I believe that. Now let's chew on some deep stuff. Like, let's, let's talk about the inner workings and the nature of the Trinity. Let's talk about the sovereignty of God. Or, or give me something practical to chew on here. Like, give me something to go, go home and work on my marriage or how to, how to handle my money better. Like, give me something to do. But it's really easy to blow past this simple truth that God is good. We're, we're getting there. I didn't quite gesture. Some of you are eager. I see the type A personalities in the room already. Good job. <laughs> we're going to have fun. Um, But I believe that if you drive that truth deep down into your psyche, it'll change everything for you. It has the power to change your relationships, your mental and emotional well-being, how you live, the way you treat people, everything. If you just know that God is good, and all the time, well done, we're gonna get it, you guys, good job. For example, way back in the Old Testament, one of the heroes of the Bible is a guy named King David. And King David, it's amazing, God actually looked at his life and said, that guy, that is a man after my own heart. Man, I want God to say that about me. And it didn't mean that King David was perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. One of the biggest mistakes King David ever made was a census. And that may not sound like a big deal for us, but, but David said, I'm gonna count my troops. I'm gonna take a census of my military. And that may not seem like a big deal, but you gotta understand that the trajectory of David's life had been dependence on God, that God had been his helper. God was how David defeated Goliath. God was the one who had won battle after battle after battle on David's behalf. David was a great king, not because of how strong he was, but because of how strong his God was. And yet toward the end of his life, David kind of departs from that trajectory. He takes a detour and he kind of grows half-hearted a little bit and he gets sidetracked and and self-reliant and he decides to take this census. And when he takes a census, really what he's doing is he's he's strutting a little bit. Let's just kind of measure his own strength, see how strong and how great he is. And, And sure enough, they take the census and when they get the number, actually to David's credit, he realizes his breach of faith and he confesses his sin to God. 2 Samuel 24 says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So the options are, David gets to pick what he wants to have happen as a result of his sin. Either they can have three years of famine in the land, or three years of war in the land, or three days of a plague sweep across the land. And David ends up choosing three days of a plague, and here's why he chooses that in verse 14. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. 
for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. You see, David had been shaped by this deep foundational confidence that even in wrath, even in punishment, even in justice, God is still good. That his hands are always the safest place to be. Let me fall into the hands of God because he's still more infinitely good than any man and he can be trusted even in my pain. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know if you know the story, but this little girl named Susan, she winds up in Narnia and she finds out that the king of Narnia, Aslan, is not a man, he's actually a lion. And Susan is surprised by this and so she asks Mr. Beaver, she says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And that's what I want you to know about God. I want you to be shaped by this deep foundational confidence of knowing that no matter what is going on in your life, whether what he's doing seems safe or not, you will know that he's good. Let me fall into the hands of God because he is trustworthy and his mercy is great and I know that God is good and all the time, well done. Now, Let's start there. And if we affirm that yes, God is good, then the next logical question we have to ask is, and some of you are here right now in your minds already, okay, if God is so good, then why is the world so bad? Why do tyrants prosper? Why do shootings happen? Why do marriages fall apart? Why do little kids get cancer? Why do young brides miscarry? Why do criminals go unpunished? If God is so good, then why is the world so bad? And doesn't the presence of evil and suffering in the world torpedo the idea of a good and powerful God? Because as Christians, we hold these seemingly contradictory truths to all be true. We would affirm four basic beliefs. We would affirm that number one, God exists. And number two, we believe that God is all powerful. Number three, we'd say that God is all good. And number four, we'd say that evil exists. All four of those things are true. But how can they all be true at the same time, right? Like, doesn't one of those have to give for the other three to be true? And I believe that scripture does give us some good reasons, some good anchors, some good ways to think through the problem of evil and suffering, and we're gonna hit that head on later on this year, but... But when you're in a season where that is your reality and where you really are suffering and you really are in pain and you really are asking those questions, then even the world's best theological answer can sometimes just sound really hollow. It can land really flat. Because what you need in that moment is not actually an answer. When my kid falls and scrapes his knee and says, Daddy, why did that happen? He doesn't need an answer, he needs a hug, right? And, and when you are in pain, God does not often reveal his reasons, but he always reveals himself. God doesn't often reveal his reasons, but he always reveals himself. Here's what I mean. I love Psalm 23. You might recognize it. The words might sound familiar to you. Psalm 23 is a prayer written by King David. It's a song or a poem, and, and, and he prays this. Notice, King David is writing here in the third person. In Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley. Pause right there. Right here in the middle of his prayer, as he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, David switches from third person to first person. He pulls God close in his pain. He says, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David affirms that even in the valley of the shadow of death, God is good. And all the time. And when you see somebody who lives with that deep foundational confidence in the goodness of God, even in their suffering, it's a shocking thing in a good way. Um, I went to Ozark Christian College and while I was there, my friend Jensen, he was a freshman, everybody loved Jensen. Just one of those magnetic guys, million dollar smile, played on the basketball team, drove this bright red 65 Mustang, beautiful car, and Jensen loved Jesus. And then one day, a semi-truck didn't see Jensen's Mustang until it was too late. And if you wanna see worship, I'll show you worship when you watch Jensen's dad standing on the front row with his arms lifted high to God, singing, you're a good, good father, as he stands 10 feet away from his 19-year-old son's casket. And he believed in that moment that God is good and that all the time, and if you're still not buying it, that's okay. Let me point you to the person of Jesus. In John chapter 11, um, Jesus has this amazing kind of encounter One of his close friends named Lazarus has just died. He died young, it was a shocking death. But the thing is, Jesus could have been there to stop it. He could have gone and healed Lazarus. He knew this was happening before Lazarus died, but he chose not to. And Jesus finally does show up on the scene a few days after Lazarus has been dead. And when he gets to Lazarus' house, Lazarus had these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Martha comes running out to meet Jesus. And she says, Lord, where were you? If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And maybe that's the question you've asked before. Like, Lord, where were you? Surely if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened to me. And Jesus gives Martha a really good theological answer for her pain. In the face of her brother's death, Jesus says this in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And that's his question to you. Do you believe this? Like his resurrection reality, this is the theological answer to our suffering. Do you believe that? It's a good answer. But then Mary, the other sister, comes running out of the house and she has the same question. She says, Lord, where were you? If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus doesn't give Mary an answer. Instead, he walks with her to the tomb, and in John 11, verse 35, it's a powerful verse, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, it just says, Jesus wept. You know, sometimes in our pain, we need an answer. But a lot of the time, we just need a God who's gonna be with us and alongside us, who's gonna understand, who's gonna hurt when we hurt and cry when we cry. And the good news is, in Jesus, we have both. That he is both the answer and a God who is with us, who understands Because right after that, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was just a preview of coming attractions of Jesus' own resurrection, which is just a preview of coming attractions of our resurrection on the day when Jesus will return. He'll make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's good news. God is good. And all the time. Philip Yancey says it like this. He's an author. He says, I must admit that Jesus has revised in flesh many of my harsh and unpalatable notions about God. Why am I a Christian? I sometimes ask myself. And to be perfectly honest, the reason's reduced to two. Number one, the lack of good alternatives. (laughs) And number two, Jesus. Brilliant, 
untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble, Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. And God's word says, well, I've got good news for you. He is who God is. That if you wanna know what God the Father is like, you just look at God the Son. If you wanna know God, look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says the Son is the image of the invisible God. So that means that if what we're saying today is true, if God really is good, then we should see that goodness displayed in the life of his son, Jesus. And I challenge you, go read the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the stories of Jesus' life, and you will see the goodness of God everywhere. You'll see this Jesus who goes around like embracing lepers and partying with outcasts and washing the feet of the people that he knows are about to abandon and betray him. What does that tell you about God? And you'll hear Jesus telling stories of a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep behind to go chase after one little lamb who wandered off and a story of a father who just stood there waiting day after day after day for his wayward son to come home. Man, what does that tell you about the heart of God? And you'll see Jesus willingly and voluntarily allowing his body to be beaten. You'll see Jesus with his skin shredded, bleeding, his life ebbing from him. And when his mother and his friend John come to comfort him, he's the one who comforts them instead. And you'll see Jesus offering the promise of eternal life in paradise to the criminal being executed next to him who'd been mocking Jesus just a few minutes earlier. And you'll see Jesus crying out to God the Father, not on his own behalf, but on behalf of the very people who nailed him to the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What does that tell you about the heart of God? And so maybe you've asked the question before, Lord, where were you? God, where are you in my pain? He's right there. He's nailed to the cross, taking all of the suffering of the world upon himself. And what kind of a God would do that? Either a God who is absolutely insane and weak and helpless in the face of evil or a God who is strong and deeply, deeply good. And I believe that God is good and that all the time. Psalm 119 says of God, says, you are good, and what you do is good. Let's look at both of those things. First of all, God is good in all that he is. God is good in all that he is. Now, when we call something good from our human perspective, it's kind of a, a comparative goodness, right? Like, you thought Larry Bird was a really good basketball player until Michael Jordan came along, right? Be honest, okay? I know some of you are like, I know, I know you're holding on, but be honest, okay? Um, we thought $3 a gallon for gas was really not good until $5 a gallon came along. We thought the iPhone 4 was the greatest thing we had ever seen until the iPhone 5 was released, right? Like it's a comparative goodness. Goodness from a human perspective is a rather fluid concept, but not with God. We don't call God good because he conforms to some external arbitrary standard of goodness. We call God good because he is the standard of goodness. That means that even though you've done some good things in your life and you're probably a nice person, that means that Jesus is right. If God is the standard, then Jesus is right when he says in Mark chapter 10 that no one is good except God alone. And that's true about me. I don't know if I've ever done anything in my life with entirely pure motives, entirely unselfish and altruistic. 
I don't know if you're totally depraved, but I know I am, right? Like some of our Christian brothers and sisters hold to what's called the doctrine of total depravity, that, that nobody has ever really been able to untangle them from their sins, to ever even do one completely good thing in their lives. We're just hopelessly lost and entangled in our own sin. And, and I don't know totally biblically, you know, where I land on that, but I do have kids, and so I see how they got there, right, experientially. I didn't have to teach my kids how to lie and how to hit their brother and how to manipulate people to get what they want. They just come by it naturally, right, because they're like their mom. <laughs> I'm sorry, babe, that was on a whim, I promise. (laughs) And yet comparatively, Psalm 18 says, as for God, his way is perfect. Let's see if you get this reference. He's like Maxwell House Coffee, good to the last, well done. Every little ounce of him is good. Every little bit of who he is, his justice is good, his wrath is good, his mercy is good, his wisdom is good, his grace is good, his patience is good. God is good in all that he is, God is good and all the time, God is good in all that he is. God is also good in all that he does, in all that he does. In Genesis chapter one, God makes the whole world, everything in it, he makes people, and verse 31 says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Of course it was, right? James chapter one tells us that anything in this world that is good is good because it comes from a good creator God. James chapter one, verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. So think of just some of the goodness around us that we get to experience in this life. How many of you are beach vacation people? Raise your hands. You got some beach vacation people? All right. How many of you are mountains people? Mountain vacation? I'm on team mountain, okay? I'm with you guys, right? But regardless, you enjoy the goodness of that view because it comes from a good God. Think of the goodness we get to experience. Think of the goodness of sunrises and sunsets and the moon and the stars of the birds singing. Think of the goodness of the smell of fresh cut grass. Think of the goodness of human relationships, the laughter at old memories with an old friend, of of getting to share a good hug with somebody that you love. Think of the goodness of marriage in its most tender moments. Think of the goodness of getting to reproduce little people who look like you. Think Think of the goodness of the taste of a snow cone after a Little League baseball game. Think of the goodness of of shooting a basketball, and you're from way farther out than you should, but it goes right through the net, and you hear that swishing sound. That's good, right? Dads, there's some goodness I hope you get to experience today. Think of the goodness of a nice, thick, juicy steak, medium rare. Dads, think of the goodness of when when you're on a golf course, and your driver just connects absolutely perfectly with that ball. I've never experienced it, but I've heard it's really good, okay? (laughs) And all of these things are good because God is good. And all the time. And yet, not everything that God does feels good in the moment. There's a difference. If you're a dad, you know that sometimes you have to do good things for your kids that aren't going to feel good to them. This week, I had to hold down my son while the nurse gave him shots, and he's got the alligator tears, and he's looking at me with that look of betrayal, like, Dad, how could you do this to me, right? And yet I know. That it does not feel good, but it is good. And this is the promise, that God is a good father. No matter if you had a good dad or a bad dad, God is a good father who is always working for your good. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter eight. He's really honest about how painful life is here on earth. He says that we are struck in a broken creation that is groaning. We're stuck in this cycle of futility over and over and over again. Life just keeps on hurting. And yet even in the middle of that, verse 28, Paul says we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. 
Doesn't mean life will be easy, but it does mean that nothing can touch you that won't be used by your heavenly father for your ultimate good. Because in all that he does, even in his judgment, even in his discipline, God is good. And all the time. There's a story about Mayor LaGuardia, who was the mayor of New York City back during the Great Depression. He loved New York City, and New York City loved him every bit as much as we now hate the airport that is named after him, right? <laughs> um, and Mayor LaGuardia, he was the mayor during the Great Depression, and he just loved this city really well. He was called the Little Flower. He was five foot four inches tall. He always wore a carnation pinned to his lapel, and he loved to just go ride the fire trucks around the city to go out on calls with them. He'd pay for entire orphanages and take them to a baseball game. At one time when the newspapers went on strike, Mayor LaGuardia read the Sunday funnies over the radio so the kids could still get a laugh, right? He's just a really good mayor. And one cold night in 1935, Mayor LaGuardia went to a courtroom that served the poorest part of the city. He dismissed the judge, gave him the evening off, and he sat down at the bar himself. And he started to hear these cases. And a little old woman was brought before him who'd been accused of stealing a loaf of bread. And so the courtroom listened as the lady told her story about how her grandchildren were starving and it was the depression. She didn't know what else to do. And yet the, the store owner said, yes, but this is a bad neighborhood. We, we can't just let this kind of stuff slide or we'll descend into anarchy. You have to punish her. We have to make an example out of her. And Mayor LaGuardia said, I'm sorry, she's, he's, he's right. The, the law is unbending here. We can't, we can't let you off the hook. And the law says that you are guilty and that the punishment is either 10 days in jail or a $10 fine. How's she gonna pay that? But at the moment that he's pronouncing her guilty, Mayor LaGuardia is also reaching into his pocket, pulls out a dollar bill, sticks it in his hat, says her fine is now canceled, and I'm gonna pass the hat around the room and find everybody in this courtroom 50 cents <laughs> for living in a city where an old woman has to steal bread to feed her grandchildren. And so they pass the hat around and even the red-faced store owner throws in his 50 cents, you know, and the next day you could read in the papers about how this bewildered little old woman stood there with a hat full of $47.50, smiling, while the whole courtroom gave the mayor a standing ovation after he took their money. <laughs> and if you think that story's good, let me tell you why you think that story's good. That story is good because it's a reflection of our good father in heaven, this is our story, right? Like we stood rightfully condemned before the God of the universe and yet he exercised both justice and mercy at the same time. He paid the price out of his own wealth by giving us the gift of his son to set us free. Anything that you think is good, anything that is good, is good because God is good. God is good all the time. I kind of messed that up, but you guys get the point, right? <laughs> so maybe you're with me on this. Maybe you're saying, okay, all right, God's good, I get it. But, but what is really the point? Like what's really at stake in this discussion? And at risk of sounding overdramatic, everything is at stake. Right here in this foundational building block of the goodness of God. Because the lie that led to the downfall of the entire world was when the serpent whispered in Eve's ear and got her to believe that maybe God wasn't actually all that good. Now, Satan didn't come right out and say it like that. He just got her to doubt God's plan just a little bit. He just got Eve to look around at her circumstances and to think, huh, I wonder why God did it like that because this sounds a little bit better. And then Genesis chapter three, verse six says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. 
She thought it would be more good than God. Now, if the snake had come up to her and said, uh, hey girl, could I get you to sign this contract on the dotted line that you're gonna abandon God and start chasing other things? She wouldn't have done it, no way. But he just whispered to her a little bit and put something in front of her that was a little bit more enticing than what God had said, and he got her, hook, line, and sinker. So, I don't know what circumstances you're in in your life right now, I don't know if it's a good season or a hard season, but wherever you are, maybe you're looking at the way of Jesus, maybe you're looking at God's commands, and you just, you're not quite buying it, or maybe you're looking at the circumstances around you, and if you're completely honest, you're struggling to grab hold of the goodness of God struggling to believe in the middle of what you're going through that God really is strong and that he really is totally and completely good. And if that's you, number one, I want you to know you're normal because I think everybody goes through those seasons. But number two, my challenge for you is that you would keep chasing after God no matter what. That every day, no matter what's going on in your life, you will wake up and you will reorient yourself under the fundamental reality that God is good and all the time, Because if you don't, if you forget the all-encompassing goodness of God, then you'll stop trusting him because you won't totally believe that he does actually have your best interest in mind and you won't really know what's on his heart and so you'll stop chasing him and you'll start chasing other things that do look good to you. A guy named Larry Crabb says it like this. He says, doubt of God's goodness creates the terror of aloneness in an unreliable world, which leads to rage against God for doing so little to protect us from suffering. When I'm not convinced that God is good, I will quietly, but with tight-lipped resolve, take over responsibility for my own well-being. You'll start looking for other things that you think are good, like a relationship or money or an obsessive hobby or a house or a resume or entertainment or um, some destructive relational habit or sexual compulsions or substance abuse. And the problem with those things is that they were not designed to give you the goodness and the satisfaction that your soul was made for. Because your God, he made you for himself. God made you for him. Have you ever thought about how audacious the Bible is. Like just the fact that we have a Bible is a little bit of a crazy thing. Because in the Bible, there's this book called the Psalms, which is 150 poems, songs, they're prayers telling God how great he is. Prayers for us as God's people to pray. Now, can you imagine if I did that? Like imagine if I go home to my wife this afternoon and said, hey, Rebecca, I've got like 150 of these poems that I wrote for you about how great I am. And I'd like you to just read them back to me every day just to tell me how wonderful I am and remind yourself of how lucky you are to be my wife. How do you think that'll go? I can tell you, you know? (laughs) And yet that's what God does. And it's not arrogant. He does it because he knows that we were made for him. He does it because he knows that he is the goodness that your soul is longing for and the only goodness that can satisfy you. There's an old preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards who said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children of the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. 
Only he can satisfy you. And the good news is that when you are completely satisfied in him, that actually frees you up to enjoy the other good things in life without needing them to carry the existential weight of your soul. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, he tells another story of a girl named Jill. Jill was in a forest one day. She's really, really thirsty. She's just absolutely parched. When she hears off through the woods, she hears the sound of a stream. And so she goes wading through the forest until finally she gets there and she sees with excitement this, this little brook. And just as she's getting ready to rush toward the clear, cool water and take a drink, she stops and she's terrified by what she sees. Because there between her and the water is Aslan the lion. C.S. Lewis writes this. It said she, she stopped. She waited for a long time, scared. And finally, Aslan spoke. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Jill is startled. She shrinks back. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There's no other stream. And my prayer for you today is that you would know the goodness of God, not just in a theoretical way, but in an experiential way, that you wouldn't just believe it, but that you would taste it. It's useless to know that water is good without drinking it. My prayer is that we as God's people will be able to say every day, just like King David did, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, here in a few minutes, the prayer team's gonna be gathering around the perimeter of the room. They'll be there with the green lanyards on, and they'll be there for the rest of the service and after the service for a few minutes. Listen, if you need to taste and see the goodness of God, if you need to experience that in your life, go talk to them. If you're just going through some circumstances where you're struggling to see the goodness of God, would you go talk to them? We wanna speak his goodness over you. We wanna walk with you to taste and see that he is good because he is what your soul was made for. I want us to reorient ourselves every single day under the reality that God is good and like David said, let me fall into the hands of God. No matter what I'm going through, no matter how bad it hurts, no matter whether or not I understand or not, we are going to know that God is good and all the time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you're a good dad. You take care of us, you provide for us, you protect us, you teach us like good dads do. You are always good. You're the only one who's never gonna let us down. We thank you for your goodness. And we believe in your goodness. Um, but if we're honest, Lord, and I'm thankful that you let us be honest, we don't always feel it, and we don't always see it, and we don't always understand what you're doing or 
And sometimes our pain clouds our judgment and even our belief. And, and so I'm just asking for my brothers and sisters here in this room today, this, what, with whatever's going on in their life, with their hopes, with their fears, with the things they're excited about, with the things that they're dreading, with the people in their life who give them energy and the people who suck the life out of them, with all of these things that we go through in this human sphere of existence, we wanna taste and see that you are good. You are the answer and you also understand. And so we praise you for that. And all God's people say, amen. Stand to worship our good king together. Yeah.